Hello and welcome to Man on the Clap Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast about Maurizio Pochettino and the question of denouement. A lot of people have asked me about my feelings with the sacking. And I'm sad. It's an end of a wonderful era that you couldn't have expected in your wildest dreams that you'd have a manager that would become so in sync with the way how... Tottenham's history, the way how we play, our expectations, our hopes, and then to guide us to there. But there's no regrets. And I think what makes this is special is that it didn't end on the day after the Champions League final. Now, we can say with hindsight that that's probably when it should have ended, that Pochettino needed a new challenge, and that Tottenham need, and the players and the squad needed a, a fresh voice. But what makes this era special is that they came back for another season. You know, Pochettino wanted it to work at Spurs, Daniel Levy and Spurs fans and the players wanted it to work with Pochettino. But it was a question of circumstances. In that Pochettino had reached a, a fork in the road. Really, if he needed a new challenge, it would have to be at a Real Madrid, Juventus, uh, Bayern Munich. A place where he could test himself with a fantastic squad, with the uh, a place where there's a win-now mentality. To see how well he could do, to see how he could challenge on a yearly basis at the top end of the table in, of European football, where you're winning Champions League, where you're winning leagues. Or if he stayed, he would have to effectively start again. He would need a fresh new squad of young players who were going to he could then mould into the you know, the Mauricio Pochettino style of play with the pressing, with the energy. There was no middle ground. In other words, with that squad, it was coming to the end of the line. There were players whose contracts were up. There were players who had just spent five years giving everything for Pochettino. And there was nothing left in the tank. And really, on his end, there was nothing left in his tank either. You know, you had injuries. You had, you know, you had the Vargol at, at Leicester. It was clear that trying to make that change. In other words, to ease out players. You know, key keystone players from the first great Pochettino team while they were still there. Now, the expectation was is that Ericsson would probably have gone, Alderweireld would have gone, and you would have then been in a slightly different place. But you can't, there's an expectation, but football isn't linear. It doesn't work in that way. And it's, it fascinates me that the most people have said that really part of the reason this has happened and that the you know team has fallen apart and the results were so poor for you know sort of six to nine months before was that it was because the squad had grown stale and that had Pochettino been able to get rid of some of those players earlier that you know would have uh, infused the squad and would have changed things. But the threat that that would have posed is that you would have. Co- you know, consequently, been mired in a what if scenario. The Pochettino era would have just been a jam tomorrow feedback loop. 
In other words, to maintain the top four with the limited resources that you'd constantly be having to swap out players, getting fresh young players in, and you'd never see quite how far Tottenham could actually go. The, the problem wasn't so much that it was year six. The problem was is that they'd reached the point where they could no longer, with the squad that they had, keep maintaining progress. That's the, the most amazing thing about the Pochettino era, is that from year one to year five, is that each year Tottenham got better in something, whereby they you know competed for the league. Then they competed for the league for the full season, didn't drop off at the end of the season, got to 86 points. Then they qualified out of their Champions League group and got to the latter stages. You know, In the last year, they were still able to make top four. They weren't quite as good in the league, but they were able to get to the Champions League final. The point was year six was going to be the first year where there was going to be a step back. And after all of that, after all of that period of time, I don't think that that was possible. Or if it was possible, so much had to go right. You couldn't have the injury to Lo Celso. You couldn't have the injury to Sessignon. You know, Ruel would have to go for decent money. Ericsson would have to go for mega money, which would then change the, the factor. But even then, even within that construct, you still have a dominant Liverpool team. You still have a particularly good Man City team. You know, Chelsea have you know, gone through huge amounts of changes and have a, so much promise. You know, you've always got the spectre of Arsenal and United and Leicester. Maintaining you know, year-on-year progress with the budget Tottenham had it is an act of alchemy and it wasn't something that was sustainable within one set of players and one manager, in my view. So if we go back to where the decline set in on the Pochettino era... You'd have to say it's the failure to sign players in the summer and the winter transfer windows. And it really represented multiple thread. It was the prioritisation of physical infrastructure, so the ground, the training facilities. And in some ways it was a failure of imagination that was you know, exacerbated with the graduation of Spurs' transfer plans. So you had Ericsson, Ali, Kane, Vertonghen, Alderweireld. All have been signed or come graduated from the youth system without huge amounts of money being spent. And now all of them had reached the stage of being top quality, you know, top 15, top 20 players in their position in the world. You know, especially with Kane and Eriksson and Vertonghen and Adrod, Dele Alli to a lesser extent. But the thing is, is what that created was is that you couldn't carry on the same transfer plans. In other words, you couldn't have signed James Madison or Jared Bowen. You know, they wouldn't have got the game time and the ability to grow as part of a team. In other words, you're not going to drop Christian Eriksen for James Madison unless, in effect, you're selling Christian Eriksen for £100 million, £80 million, and then buying James Madison as a replacement, knowing that in you know, 12, 6, 12, 18 months he could potentially be at that level. But then what that really asks is you know, the, the key question. I mean, could Spurs have reached the Champions League final without Rose, Eriksen, Vertonghen and Alderweireld? They couldn't have done. So as much as the you know, not spending any money in the transfer window was 
deleterious in the medium term. It's led to the end of the Pochettino era, which was not the plan for Eric for Pochettino. It wasn't the plan for Daniel Levy, and it wasn't the plan that Spurs fans had. But what it did was open up the possibilities of seeing just how far that team could go. How far could Ericsson, how far could that Tottenham team go? And it's worked. It's got Spurs to a Champions League final. It's got you to a one-off game for all of the marbles. And yes, while they lost, and as sad as that was, there's no regrets now. In other words, I don't think Pochettino regrets it. I don't think Daniel Levy regrets it. I don't think any of those players regret it. We now know just how far Tottenham can go under Pochettino. We know how far those players could go. And that was all of the way. You know, just one step below, you know, the the fairy tale ending. And at least we know. Yes, in the end it meant that the shelf life of the battery of the Pochettino era was run down. But that's that's an ending. Whereby if you'd sold Ericsson you know, a year ago, yes, we'd be in a better financial place. Yes, the squad might be slightly fresher, but you don't beat Man City. You don't beat Ajax. You don't get to that level without having a squad that has that level of fight. And it often happens if you compare them to the late, you know, the, you know, the last great Wenger team. It wasn't the Invincibles that made the breakthrough in Europe. It was the couple of years afterwards. Yes, that team wasn't as competitive in the league. It wasn't as good from a footballing standpoint. But when you see the end, and even you can say the same about the Chelsea team that won the Champions League, is that you have a collective need to achieve something, to have some narrative end to it. And in the end, for Arsenal, it ends in Paris. For Spurs, it ends in Madrid. And for Chelsea, they will always have Munich. With all of the criticism that Daniel Levy gets, and some of it is fair and a lot of it is, you know, in my opinion, completely unfair. Yes, you could ask, well, why didn't they sell Ericsson for Tonga and Alderman? Why did they let their contracts go down? And I suppose the argument is it's almost one part unexpected events and two parts narrative importance. In other words, if we're going to take you know the the Levy critics at their word that the man is you know a bean counter that is just all about the bottom line, then the the financially prudent thing to do would have been to sell them. It would have you know maximizing their value you know to best replenish the squad with younger, cheaper players, and that would be best for the medium and the long term. But. This all comes down to the narrative. In other words, the threat of losing Pochettino was so key at that, in sort of years three, four and five, was so key. In other words, there was rumours of him going to Manchester United. There was rumours of him going to Real Madrid. He was on the verge. And had you then sold some of his best players, had you weakened the squad at that juncture, then you're increasing the chances of him going. He was too vital at that stage. You needed Pochettino because of what he'd done at the start. He'd created a alchemy. In other words, he had managed to get Spurs from upper mid-table into the top four. He was competing for leagues. They were getting to the latter stages in the Champions League. 
there was a sense that nobody else could replicate it on the budget that he had. Now, if you compare it with Liverpool, you know they were able to sell Suarez and Coutinho without a corresponding lack of stature. You know their glorious history and their recent Champions League success under Benitez it, it countermanded any narrative decline. But Spurs' relative lack of success and recent history and the impact of the sales that they'd had to make in the previous 10 years. You know, Carrick, Berbatov, Modric, Bale. It made it psychologically harder. You know, it would have, you know, people would have seen Spurs as a bridesmaid club. In other words, a graduate school. You know, a, a club that's sort of reliant on individual acts of genius on the playing field and m on the managerial side of things. But that that's what you do. You go to Spurs to establish yourself, to put yourself into the shop window, to get yourself into the verge of the top four, the top four itself, and then you leave. You graduate out into the top level of European football, your Real Madrid's. You know, your Juventus. You go and that's where you win things. The difference is now with Spurs in the short term, the medium term, the long term. One of the, the, the most greatest achievements of the Pochettino era is to have legislated him out of the club. In other words, we don't need a Pochettino to save the club. You know, the infrastructure in terms of the training ground, in terms of the youth setup, in terms of the stadium itself. The club is on a good setting. There are talented youth team players. They are established as a top six outfit. You know, for the third year in a row, they're in the latter stages of the Champions League. They're regularly qualifying for the Champions League. The next you know, Spurs manager, and in this case it's Mourinho, doesn't have to, you know, do the miracles, the alchemy of Pochettino. What's needed now is, in effect, a, a short-term manager. And that's what you're getting with Mourinho. The sense that you could, you know, the logical replacement for Pochettino would have been any number of bright young European managers, you could say a, a Nagelsmann, or you know, if you're going for an English manager, you go with an Eddie Howe. That would be the financially prudent thing to do. You know, broadly in keeping with the financial transfer parameters, the footballing ideology, and someone who's relatively cheap to sign, who would just simply carry on the Pochettino you know, progress. Same similar style of football, utilising the players that he'd you know, bequeathed to his successor. But if you're hiring Eddie Howe, you're hiring in the sense that maybe in 18 months, in two years, possibly by year three, you would be at the peak of where he could take that football club. In other words, he's not going to radically alter what the football club is doing in 18 months. You know, he's never managed a European game. He's never you know, had to compete at the top six level. He's never had that kind of pressure. You know, any new man, any new foreign manager who didn't have experience of playing in English football or managing English football will need, you know, 6, 12, 18 months to, to really get up to speed. And that's not what Spurs need. They have Harry Kane, they have 
Son, they have more than enough frontline talent that needs to know that Tottenham need to win now. That it's going to take a bold move to keep Kane. You need to keep expand the club's profile internationally. So yes, why Mourinho? Well, it's a risk. You know, he is hugely more expensive than any other manager. He's far riskier. We know his track record. We know, you know, the potential for it to burst into flames, to be a, a gigantic tire fire. There's the sense that he's less in keeping football wise with what Marie, with what Pochettino had done previously. But the Pochettino era has fundamentally altered Spurs. No, he has laid the road to Mourinho. He's now... I think there's a sense when you look back on the Pochettino era that he was growing as a manager as well as the players were growing. And eventually, that can't be forever. You can't have a system which is so predicated on development at managerial level and development at player level. At some point, the narrative has to shift. There's enough talent and there's enough depth in that squad to kick on. So when Mourinho at his one of his first press conferences says, we can't win the league this year, but we can certainly try next year. I don't think there are very, very few managers that Tottenham could have brought in who would have been able to say that. Eddie Howe couldn't have said that. I don't think Julian Nagelsmann could have said that. What the group needed was fresh ideas, a fresh way of training and something that clearly predicates that this football team needs to win now. You know, the, you know, the longer term and the medium term look fine. They, they've got more than enough talent floating around the football club. I mean, if you look at it, you know, the next great Tottenham team is here. So if you take the uh, 1-11 under-23 lineup, Tottenham probably have one of the best in the Premier League. It probably matches up with Chelsea to an extent. If you look at it, you, you'd have a back four of you know Walker-Peters, uh, Ryan Sessegnon, Davison Sanchez, Juan Foyf. Now, in Walker-Peters and Sessegnon, you have two under-21 England internationals. I mean, Sessegnon in his career has had you know, great success at Fulham. He's been very highly rated. And he can be the potential to be fantastic at left back, potentially left mid, a left wing back. You know, Sanchez has already been to a, you know, he's been part of a Tottenham team that's got to the Champions League final. He's been part of an Ajax team that's got to the Europa League final. He's played at World Cups and you know has succeeded. I mean, his tackle on Sadio Mane originally it was given a penalty because the referees inter naturally thought there's no way that Sanchez could have kept up. With Marnier. He had to have fouled him. And when they varred it, he'd made a world class tackle. You know, with Juan Foyf, he is now broken into the Argentina team. He can play as part of a back three, he can play as a full back. And he's good on the ball, he's good in the tackle, he's got enough pace to be able to keep up with Zaha. When Palace played Spurs in the FA Cup earlier in the year, Tottenham were pressing for. An equaliser, and more often than not, he was left one on one. Now, Wolf Zaha on his day can murder fullbacks and centre half, especially the ones that don't have pace. The fact that he was able to keep up, 
if you look at midfield, you're talking Harry Winks, you know, England international, like Oliver Skip in England, 21 international, you know, Tango and Dombele, you know, Giovanni Lo Celso, Deli Ali. So, you know, Ali's already gone to a World Cup, got to a World Cup semi final. You know, Lo Celso has broken into the Argentina team, you know, along with Foyf, who's got to a Copa America final, you know, who've got a draw out in Germany, who've just beaten Brazil. You know, Ndombele's success last year with you know Leon getting a result against Man City at the IT Had. You know, you've got Troy Parrott up front, and you know, seventeen years old made his in, already made his international debut, and he's just pulling up trees. He just looks a cut above the you know even the under twenty three players, and when he's you know played in preseason, didn't look out of place at all. So you've got three Argentina internationals, two England internationals, three under England under twenty one internationals, a Colombia international, an Ireland international. That is a huge amount of talent all across the the team in every single position. They won't all be fantastic, but in terms of being under twenty three, lots of them have got a hundred games in the Premier League, fifty, sixty, seventy Premier League games. You know, they're playing for international teams that are successful, that are qualifying for tournaments. You know, even at England under twenty one level. You know, competition is fierce. There is a huge amount of English talent floating around in football, in domestic football, and even, you know, across Europe. I mean with the goalkeeper I put in this lineup Gazaniga, which is a slight lie. He is just you know, he's above in his mid twenties, he's above twenty three. But he's broken into the Argentina team. And okay, even if you were to hold me to the, the rules, you've got, you know, an England under twenty one international in you know, who's ostensibly, you know, fourth choice goalkeeper behind Vaughan. There there is so much opportunity available that you don't have to worry if the Mourinho fails. In other words, we're going to know in a year whether it succeeded or not. You know, far from worrying about what happens in year three, really, by the summer, you'll know. If he's managed to get the team playing, if he's managed to utilise the resource that he has, so your Sessegnons, your Los Celsos, your Undumbelis, your Parrot, that means that the medium term and the long term are sorted out. It means you know you don't have to worry so much about your transfer budget. My own personal viewpoint is, is that I think Mourinho will give himself to the end of the year, end of the season, and see where Tottenham are at. Now, if he's managed to you know, build something, if he's managed to you know deal with the eventual loss of Eriksson, potentially one, two, or both of Alderweireld and Vertonghen and he's confident and been able to use the players he has at his disposal, then he's only going to need maybe two or three players in the transfer window. And they've got a shot at going for the league if they buy two or three of the right players. No guarantees that they'll win it. Liverpool are still strong. Manchester will always be there or thereabouts. You'd still have Leicester and Chelsea. But they'd be there or thereabouts. Now, alternatively, if it's not worked out, if he doesn't, you know, want to use Parrot, if he doesn't want to use Cessignon or Lo Celso or Ndombele or Oliver Skip, then he's going to need five, six players. 
He's going to need a clear out. He's going to need huge amounts of money to bring in the players that he considers to take Tottenham to the next level. At which point, you're just going to have a fallout with Daniel Levy. If, you don't, if he doesn't believe that the squad he has in, by next summer is capable of competing, you just fall out with Daniel Levy over the transfers, and then you have the easiest narrative in the world. I thought Tottenham could go you know, all the way to the top. However, Daniel won't back me in the transfer market, and I'm off. And that's an easy narrative for the media and for your everyday sports fan to buy into. Oh, it wasn't Mourinho, it was Daniel Levy. Of course Daniel Levy wouldn't back Jose, he didn't back Pochettino. It's that kind of easy argument. I mean, I don't think we've asked the right questions. What are actually Spurs looking for from Mourinho? It's not for him to be a long-term empire builder. They're not expecting him to try and replicate Sir Alex Ferguson. They're not asking him to replicate what Pochettino's done. They need trophies and relevance. You know, for all the brilliance that Pochettino did, Tottenham fell at the final hurdle. And that's not a criticism of Pochettino. It, if you've done such a brilliant job to get them there, I don't think you can necessarily hammer him for not having the same resource that Klopp did or that any other of the top-level European teams have. But clearly, for Spurs to go where they need to go and to try and kick on, they need someone with a different mentality. And Mourinho offers that. With risks, with baggage, and what Pochettino does to become you know, a great manager, he needs the resource. He needs a squad that, Athletic, uh, that Real Madrid have, that a Juventus have, that a Bayern Munich has. That means that he's not constantly having to rob Peter to pay Paul, that it's not you know, constantly talking about development, that is actually testing himself with a world-class squad, where if he writes down three names on a list and gives it to the sporting director, those three names will then be presented by the end of the summer. And that he will then be able to mould that team into you know, his own playing style. And there is open questions of whether you know, he can do that with under the... You know, whether he'd get the buy-in from a established squad. In other words, at Spurs, he always had the advantage that year on year he would offer them progress. And at his next job, it's not going to necessarily be progress, it's going to be success. And it's going to be a squad that you know, is going to be independently successful from Pochettino. Which is really what fascinates me, I think, over his next job is that if he wants to in some ways replicate the job he's done at Spurs, Manchester United will be the club to go to. And you could argue that, you know, the, although there's far less stability behind closed doors in terms of Woodward, in terms of the ownership structure, he would then almost become central. In other words, he'd be almost his own director of football, he'd be manager, and he would be the absolute centre point of the entire football club. And he would then have the resource and the power that Manchester United have. In other words, it would be a turbocharged version of what he had at Spurs. And I think he'd do, again, a fantastic job. And it would take three, four, possibly even five years to get to where he you know, took Spurs, which is competing for titles and doing brilliantly well in Europe. But if he wants to really test his managerial limits 
I think you go to Real Madrid or Juventus or Bayern Munich is where you're really going to see whether he has the skills to input his football into a pre-existing squad. And one of the, I suppose, hyper-criticisms of him is it was with signings. He would always say that a signing needs three months, six months, a year to you know, understand his demands and to you know, realise the Pochettino way of playing. And I've always thought that was a bit of a cop-out. <laughs> And showed a sense of intransigence. In other words, you know, you work towards my style. I don't, you know, change my style for anything. And I don't think you'd be able to get away with that at Real Madrid. If you have two or three Galacticos signed, the expectation is if you put seventy-five, a hundred million pounds into a football player, they're going to start from day one, and you then have to grow within that. You'd have to, you know, I, I think there's a certain amount that at Spurs with how young the team was and he was able to push them very hard but by the time you got to sort of years five and six the battery had you know run low on those players and that they weren't able to give the kind of commitment that he required and that you'd need to I suppose modify your coaching and I think he, he certainly has that ability um, you know in terms of you know again he, there was always year on year improvement at Spurs and year on year improvement for him you know in terms of you know he started using a back three at times wing backs and at Spurs there was a sort of a slight chameleonic effect in that he went from having a very young team that peaked with the sort of 86 point season and the sort of last six months with you know regards to the Champions League run when he was really, you know, you, you were reliant on, at times, Victor Wanyama, who's no longer anywhere near the player he once was. You, you know, relying on, you know, Lorente to do a job off the bench. And it was very much a, a patchwork squad. But he was able to, you know, still have the spirit needed to, to mount the comebacks against Ajax. You know, to you know, get that result at the City of Manchester Stadium. And even in the first leg, with the sort of defensive solidity that you would need to you know, keep Man City off the board long enough for them to make a mistake. You know, there was moments where he was able to change. In other words, a few times in the league, they didn't press as much. They started to move towards a slightly more counter-attacking team. So, I do think that if he went to any of those, you know, sort of four, five star outfits, I think he would be successful. But it is fascinating to see how he would develop as a top level manager. Which really sort of neatly leads on to what have I seen so far from Mourinho in these, you know, first two games. I think for me it comes down to whether he is tactical Mourinho. If he's in if he goes into that lineup and he sees something that maybe Pochettino didn't, then Spurs have a then Spurs are in a very promising position. I think it, it was fascinating what he did against West Ham is that he had a clarity that Pochettino had lost. Now if you're managing a club with the sort of pressure and the consistent changes that Pochettino was always having to deal with, 
in that the expectation level grows precipitously year on year along with the need to maintain top form and also to progress in Europe. I think it was fascinating that in his last 99 games at Spurs he never did the same lineup twice. When Pochettino's Spurs were brilliant was in the 86 point season when pretty much the lineup just wrote itself. And with the contractual situation behind the you know Ericsson's, Vertonghen's and Alderweireld's and the need to constantly, you know, reimagine Spurs. You know, you needed to give Sanchez enough games so that he would maintain his development. You needed to keep Vertonghen happy, you needed to keep Alderweireld happy. Sometimes that meant you played a back three, which then meant that you were having to then drop, you know, more and more was always the first person to get dropped. You, you know, Ericsson was such a key point that when Ericsson played well, Spurs played well, so you had to keep him happy, and you weren't in a position to drop him because then you know you might lose him. Whereby Mourinho came in with a completely clean slate, and it's fascinating that he just sort of sat there and went, "I need to get Harry Kane on form. I need to get him the ball. If Harry Kane is scoring, Tottenham are going to do well." Now, how have they you know historically achieved that in the last three or four years? It's when Deli Ali plays well. So I need Deli Ali back to being a world-class football player because them two working together, they're both young, they're both English, that would work. And so immediately he's then put a, a huge amount more, I suppose, energy into getting Deli Ali good. Which then means, of course, Ericsson has to be dropped. But for Mourinho, he has the luxury of knowing that Ericsson's gone at the end of the year. Or possibly even January, if you believe what the Danish press are saying. So it's not a loss for him to get rid of, you know, Christian Eriksen. You know, in other words, giving him a bit of, you know, public criticism, I think has actually helped spur him on in when he came on against Olympiakos in midweek. And so by just making these little alterations, he's been able to provide a base on which Spurs were able to play well. And, you know, the players have responded to that. You know, the first sort of sixty minutes at West Ham were the best sixty minutes outside of the, you know, European Cup run, really since January, December last year. They were playing quick football, there was commitment and there was an understanding that Mourinho had in that putting Eric Dyer in Defensive midfield would give him confidence. Putting Deli Ali at ten would give him confidence. That putting Lucas Moura out on the wing would make him happier than he ever was playing more centrally, which is how he was sort of utilised under Pochettino. You know, that Spurs having that kind of pace on the counter attack against a team with the weaknesses of West Ham would likely get you change, and you would you know, get a result. <laughs> And I think there was a sort of sly wink towards, you know, the last great Tottenham League team, the 86-point team. Now, really, in the short term, that's got, you know, a couple of results. And I think it was interesting with his lineup against Olympiakos that he wanted to keep that good feeling going. And what he would imagine would be a lineup that understood the, understood the way how he wanted to play. And that contributed to Spurs going 2-0 down. 
it was a tired lineup. A lot of those players had been on international break, had travelled huge amounts of distance, and they were coming up against an Olympiacos team with absolutely nothing to lose. And they rapidly got overrun, they were deservedly 2-0 down, and it really showed the extent of the job that he has to do. That there is still there's a reason why Pochettino had left and the first half an hour against Olympiacos was just was exhibit A of the tiredness, some of the players aren't as good as they previously was. You know, you're looking at Danny Rose isn't the same player since he's had the knee injuries. He's someone who's, you know, you know, thirty. And that really there was enough freshness on the bench that had they had Mourinho made some changes, that team would have been better positioned to match up against Olympiacos's, you know, high press and high energy. You know, you had this the the emphasis of a, of an opposition that were in some ways playing for a Premier League move. You know, it's late December, sorry, late November. Transfer windows coming up. Scoring goals against Tottenham and Mourinho at you know Tottenham Hotspur slash White Hart Lane Stadium is a great place to put yourself in the window for a move. You know, there's always going to be Premier League teams in January looking for an impact player you know, to to you know, save you from relegation, to help you kick on, you know, to compete for the Europa League places. And when faced with this first challenge, it's important I think for me it was tactical Mourinho. He took off his you know main defensive midfield player and brought on Christian Eriksen. Now there was plenty of other, you know, players on the bench that he could have utilized as a an extra attacking midfield player. Uh, Lo Celso and Dombele, both of whom had been in better form than Ericsson. Who are most definitely, you know, Tottenham's long-term future. But it showed a level of belief. It was something, it was reminiscent of, you know, Mourinho at his first go-round with Chelsea, where it was taking a huge risk. In other words, had Olympiacos got a third goal, you know, the tenor, the tone of that performance would have been completely different. But it's it's a masterful man management way of saying, I believe in you. That I trust that the back four can tighten up enough to, you know, prevent them scoring again, and that with the talent that we have, that we will eventually, you know, pass our way round, we will get through Olympiacos and we will go and win this game. And it, and in throwing down the gauntlet to Ericsson to say, you have a great opportunity to just play football and to enjoy playing football. And broadly speaking, it worked. They got the result. They realised that eventually Olympiacos were going to run out of energy. And they did pretty much a little bit before half-time in that they put so much into it. It's not For me, it's not a surprise that they made such a rudimentary error with the air the air kick that led to the first Deli Alley goal. And I think it's interesting to note that within sort of four or five minutes of the second half, Tottenham were all over them and you know deservedly got the equaliser and then went on to win the game. It was still a little bit helter-skelter, but it was very much like a sort of a prize fight in a sense that in the first three or four rounds, Olympiacos were you know absolutely in, in the ascendancy, but they weren't able to get the knockout punch 
and as soon as Spurs, you know, essentially sized up the opponent and were then able to, you know, really methodically, you know, take apart the defence until the point that Olympiacos were just wildly swinging. The sort of last half an hour, they were just throwing people forward, you know, in the hope of, you know, getting a knockout punch that was just wasn't there. They'd lost the energy, they didn't have the sort of talent on the bench that could really hurt Spurs. And I kind of wonder whether he'd have been able to make that kind of move at Manchester United. I don't think he quite had the same players to do that, and I think that the stakes were that much higher in that had he made a mistake, had, let's say, you know, he'd done that at, for Manchester United and Yoppo got a third goal, the pressure would have been ratcheted that much further up. With Spurs, because the expectations aren't as high and I think the building blocks are in place in terms of the stadium, the training ground, the sort of young players they have in the squad, this is a lot closer to you know, Mourinho's sort of work at Porto and Chelsea. And if he wants to do that, because really for me, the Mourinho of Real Madrid, of Manchester United and Chelsea the second time round was, I'd call them the stadium rock years, where you know it was a band doing 80,000 seat stadiums only, <laughs> where the show had to be big, it had to be absolutely dominant, whereby going to Spurs is more like going to Brixton Academy, it's more, it's more intimate, it's not quite as big, it's not quite as glamorous, but if you really want to be there, if you want to focus on, focus on the music, you'll have an audience that will follow you there. If he wants to do what he did, you know, with having, you know, he's got Harry Kane, he's got, he's got Son, he's got, you know, Sissoko, he's got Dyer. At the moment, he has, you know, a Vertonghen, an Alderweireld, a Lloris. He has a experienced spine to this football club, and he has a huge amount of young talent. And if he focuses on that, if he focuses on the tactics, if he focuses on giving them that killer winning edge. You know, I suppose you in this point you'd almost be comparing you know Pochettino's work to sort of Claudio Ranieri, in that the you had the Monaco game where Spur, where Chelsea were in the Champions League semi final and they had the potential to get to the final, and they didn't quite have enough. There was mistakes and this was more you know tactical blunders from Ranieri, but the the key points were there. You know, you had Czech who was young. You had Terry Lampard, Cole. Arjun Robin, and once you put them all together and you added something more to it, a bit more discipline, they were able to have that success. I'm cautiously optimistic about the Mourinho-Spurs partnership. It is that it represents a change in where Spurs are going. You know, the, the elephant in the room of, of this podcast has been Daniel Levy. Because the critics of, of Daniel Levy would say that the reason that the Pochettino era failed was a failure of his making. Is that he, he didn't back Pochettino enough and that you know focused on the 
infrastructure, the stadium, the training ground more than on the team, that they've won one trophy in 20 years, that they've, you know, failed to back their managers, they've been too quick to sack them, you know, they've been cheap with signings and contracts, and that, and that really what Tottenham should have done was focused on the squad that Pochettino had, and that the manager and the squad was such an anomaly that Spurs should have overspent to win the Premier League, that they shouldn't have bothered with the debt that the new stadium would have would provide and stayed at White Hart Lane. And to me it's, it's overly simplistic. If you take West Ham and Everton, there is no guarantee that, that spending huge amounts of money, you know, and maintaining your existing infrastructure, so Goodison Park or the the move to the Olympic Stadium in that with the move to the Olympic Stadium hasn't hugely altered you know West Ham's you know financial power in that I think one of the economic statements that came out was in the first year at the new stadium for West Ham they'd made about the same amount of money from tickets as they had at Upton Park <laughs> You know, the, the critics of Levy use him as a, a piñata, in that he's you know, emblematic of modern football. You know, the element of the, the commercial, the element of the data that has now come into it. And the, 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 this is really the age... So if, if it's the age of infrastructure in football, you know, in the way that it's the age of data in baseball. In baseball, you have analytics, you have moneyball, and that's become such a key part of how baseball teams are run and how baseball teams are successful in terms of their development, in terms of the players, how they view them, how they rank them. And in football, it's now the age of infrastructure. It's how much is how big is your stadium, how good is your training ground, how good is the manager you're able to attract, how good are the players you're able to buy. You know, in England we, we have a love of the singular genius. We you know, absolutely worship our managers. You know, and for a lot of the critics of, of Levy, it's the idea that you over, you overly import on trophies. You you know, fixate on that. You fixate on the great man theory. So their idea is you get a great manager, the great manager wins you pots and pans, and then you build the stadium afterwards and the infrastructure around that. Which is what happened... 20, 30, 40 years ago. And it's no longer possible now. You know, trophies are a mark of financial power. It's not a meritocracy. In other words, in the modern age, you now have to build the stadium. You now have to build the training ground. You have to institute the culture of developing young players. And once you all have that in place, then you can get a manager like you know Guardiola at Man City, and Klopp to Liverpool, and you know Pochettino to Spurs. So Spurs, in the long term, are in a fantastic place. You know, with regards to building a stadium that can also host you know NFL, that could be a visionary thing. If London eventually does get a franchise, and I do believe in the next 15, 20 years that will happen then that's going to be a game changer in terms of getting you know, uh, rights to the naming of the stadium. Now, 20, 30 years ago, that wasn't 
a thing. It didn't exist, it wasn't important, but now it is. And getting, you know, building a, a global fan base. You know, if you compare it with the Olympic Stadium, Levy was correct in that that stadium was not fit for purpose as a long-term football ground. And that when baseball is held at the Olympic Stadium, West Ham don't benefit. Whereby when Rugby Union, when Rugby League, when the NFL is played at White Hot Lane, that is something that is actually tangibly beneficial to Spurs in terms of the bottom line, in terms of building a brand. And with the young squad that they have, with the talent that I've mentioned in terms of under-23s, there's something sustainable. Yes, there is you know, debt on the stadium, and eventually that debt will be paid. But if you look at Chelsea and how much money they're going to have to spend on their stadium, and how much money you know, Everton are going to have to spend... You have to do it now at some point, and you have to make that sustainable. And in terms of building a culture which would allow them to develop young players, so that not only have you built this stadium, you've returned Spurs to relevance. You know, a lot of his critics will say that you know he's all about the bottom line, and and there is you know some element of truth in that, but. If it was simply a situation where it was a pump and dump, in other words, you pump up Spurs' value to the highest point you can possibly get it, and then you sell it for a huge profit, they could have done that years ago. You know, the training ground could have been done cheaper, the stadium could have been done cheaper, and, you know, say, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds, and still have the basic building blocks in place. And they haven't done that. And there's an element of flexibility. Now, for, for years I've said that you know, with Pochettino and the signing, was that, that was a manager that Daniel Levy had always wanted, who fit his philosophy, who was able to enact his vision on the field and, and in the training ground. So in other words, that was something that was, something that was replicable. If you look at well, why Leicester are doing so well, it's the dividend. In other words, you're still getting the dividend of signing Jamie Vardy from Fleetwood for £1 million. You've still got the cheap signing of Kasper Michael. All of those little building blocks, all of the money that they got from selling Kante, the money they got from selling Mares, the money they sell, got from selling Maguire, has helped them build this fantastic football team that they have. Eventually, those dividends are going to run out, you know, Jamie Vardy will leave, and he will not be sold for a huge amount of money. Same thing with Cash for Michael. And eventually, it will come down to how good the manager, the next manager they hire, how good the players that they're able to, to buy, how they're able to build a culture. And so, to an extent, I think it's always going to be more of a struggle for Leicester. I think they'll be there or thereabouts as a top 10 Premier League team, but it is virtually impossible to sign you know, the Maguires from relegated Hull to you know, get players such as Morris for you know, £300,000 from France, you know, Gallo Kante, £4.5 you You get that once in a generation. And once you're you know, set as a top 10, top 6, top 4 team, to compete at year on year, the players you ha get have to have the the ability to be plug and play, to be great from day one, because you can't give six months 
to embed players in because that puts you in mid-table, that puts you 15 points behind the top four. So my question is whether Leicester can maintain that in the medium to long term. You know, My argument is that Levy is an exceptional long-term owner. Now, you can ascribe the most cynical motives. You can consider Daniel Levy to be an incompetent. But answer these questions. Are Spurs better off in the league and Europe from when you know, Levy, Lewis and Enoch took over? Yes. They're qualifying for the Champions League year on year. They've got to a Champions League final. Three years in a row, they've got to the last 16. Are Spurs better off in terms of infrastructure? They have a brand new stadium, a brand new training ground. And they have a squad full of young, talented football players who, you know, if things go right, could be the next great Tottenham team. So that's my view. He, as a long-term owner, he has a view of custodianship as the overriding concept. Le- you know, leaving it in a better state than when he took it over and doing it. Take- and if it takes 15 years, it takes 15 years. As I've said in my podcast about West Ham, they have taken the short-term measures. Everton have taken the short-term measures. It never works. Or if it does work, it only ever a short-term. In the end, it will take 15 years, and owners have to be willing to take that time to do that. So if you want your mid-table Premier League team going nowhere at the moment to be where Tottenham are, it will take 15 years. It will take the culture and having to have that view. If that means you sack five managers because they don't do exactly what you want them to do, if you then hit that one manager who does, then you can have the success. Now, where I would criticise Levy is that while he's probably a good medium-term owner, he's probably only a fair short-term owner. At times he's shown flexibility, the signing of Harry Redknapp, who wasn't what Daniel Levy had in mind as a great manager, or the manager that he thought that could take Tottenham far. But with two points, eight games, Harry Redknapp was just the person and contributed to getting Spurs you know, that first step, that first team that was able to qualify for the Champions League and the fantastic run that he had. You know, getting to the quarterfinals, you know, the bail, <laughs> the bail years. What the signing of Mourinho for me signifies is the, the slight change in that now that the infrastructure is there in the long term, now that the football team in terms of the squad in the medium term is in a good position and the youth academy is, that now... Spurs need to be a short-term outfit. And the, in the refinancing of the loans, in, in the signings that they've made in getting Jose Mourinho in, is that it's an, an understanding that you're not always going to be able to get a Harry Kane through the youth system. And that when you have a player of that significance, that you need to take risks. That the success of the Pochettino era is in that you don't need another Pochettino. What you now need is someone who has a one-year plan, a two-year plan, to really see just how far this team can go with a win-now manager. And it is an inherent risk. But my argument would be that if it fails, if Mourinho ends up in 6, 12, 18 months as a gigantic tyre fire, 
you're still going to have your Eddie Howes, your generic, progressive, young, talented European managers. They're not going anywhere. The long-term infrastructure isn't going anywhere at Spurs in terms of the stadium, in terms of the youth talent that you have and the culture that they have fostered in terms of being able to buy young players. You know, from Alan Sugar hiring David Pleat as director of football and buying young players, so Everington, Davies, Doherty, Anthony Gardner, you know, to Martin Joel signing, you know, Michael Dawson, Jermaine Genus, Carrick, Defoe, you know, through to Pochettino signing, you know, Deli Alley. That that culture isn't going to you know, dissipate because you've signed Jose Mourinho as manager. You know, while the failure to sign players in the transfer window may have you know, sowed the seeds for the end of the you know, Pochettino era at Spurs, what shifting to a short-term operation has done has given us this magical run to the Champions League final. It's given us a sense of denouement. We know just how far Mauricio Pochettino can take us. And now with Mourinho, we will now see just how far he can take Spurs. Thank you for listening.